Gone are the days of knights and chivalry, and yet that hasn't changed God's vision of you as a man of valor. Today, pornography is a simple mouse click away, and sexual addiction is at an epidemic level. Dr. Mark Laser is an internationally known author and speaker, the leading Christian authority on sexual addiction, and the host of Faithful and True's online radio production, The Men of Valor Program. Here now is Dr. Mark Laser. Welcome to The Men of Valor Program uh, with a rather cold-ridden voice. I bid you hello from uh, gradually warming plains of Minnesota. Well, this is one of the things that we deal with along the way, Mark. We, you, you kind of uh, uh, roll with the punches as far as our health is concerned and uh, things like colds that come along, sore throats. Uh, you know, the show must go on, Mark. That's, that's something I just came up with. I don't know if you yeah. like that. Is that well, catchy? I, I think you ought to find a lawyer so that you can uh, trade, <laughs> trademark that. There may, be, uh, yeah. there may be some infringements uh, taking place as we speak here. Well, that would assume that we know who originally said it. I the don't first know. Time. No. Probably. Uh, I think it was Ziegfeld, actually. Was it? Okay. Yeah. Uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, well, it's my Cliff Clayman uh, uh, moment uh, of trivia. I always look forward to those, by the way. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, today we're going to continue on with uh, what we've been calling. Sex Addiction 101, kind of just a basic introduction to the field. And uh, the last several weeks, we've been talking about the healthy sexuality model. And uh, I believe you now have the diagram of that model on yep. our very new website, by the way. Yes, very new. Yeah. So I hope those of you that are looking at our website have seen some of the rather dramatic changes that we've made, all in an effort to make them uh, more smartphone or make the website more smartphone friendly. In other words, get it so that it's easier to look at on a smaller screen. Yeah, we have a lot of listeners out there. That's a relevant point, Mark. It's, uh, our previous website was not uh, mobile-friendly, and the new one is exceedingly mobile-friendly. So mm-hmm. we want our resources to be easy, uh, mm-hmm. easily found and uh, for people to be able to connect with us. Right. So uh, look at the diagram. Uh, go on the website, look at the diagram, uh, print it up if you want to. And those of you that... Uh, are conceptualizing it or looking at it, you know that there are these five dimensions. So far, we've talked about physical, behavioral, and emotional last week, and now this week we're going to talk about the bottom one in the diagram, and that is the relational dimension. And uh, uh, the first thing that I think about about the relational dimension is that sex addicts as a whole are, are really not very good at relationship. One of the terms we've used for years uh, about sex addiction is that it is an intimacy disorder. And that simply means that because sex addicts are not being honest, they're not being truthful, they maybe have issues of avoidance or sometimes they have issues of anxiety, they have these core beliefs that no one will love me as I am, so Therefore, I'm not going to tell you the truth about me because I'm afraid you'll hate me and leave me. That does not make for a very healthy relationship. So obviously every day here at our counseling center, we're working with couples that have been struggling with those kinds of uh, relationship issues. And uh, a lot of it is based on the addict's uh, intimacy disorder. Well, we're looking forward to today's show because this uh, this element of the model for sexual uh, wholeness, uh, relational is uh, is really right up there as far as the reality of the everyday interaction between couples. Yeah, I think the first thing we need to certainly uh, own 
and I'm owning this as a, you know, a recovering sex addict, is that you know, our addiction has been incredibly painful uh, for the average spouse. And uh, you know, that makes uh, the healing journey uh, very difficult in the early days in terms of uh, the pain and the anger and the discovery and all of those kinds of things. So you know, we have lots of challenges uh, in the early days. Uh, I would also, you know, just remind our listeners that uh, we have gone to some pain to provide resources uh, in this coupleship or relationship dimension here at Faithful and True. Debbie's in my book, uh, The Seven Desires, is uh, really based on some of the things we teach. And then uh, this past year, we came out with our couples uh, uh, toolbox, toolkit. The toolkit for individuals and couples. Right. And it includes things in there. Uh, about the relational dimension, including, you know, how we do uh, full disclosure, for example, how we do abstinence contracts and uh, all of that. Redemptive so, separation. Redemptive separation in situations where the relationship has become so toxic that uh, separating the couple out for a while seems to be an important thing. And yet you kind of cap it off with a wonderful chapter on vision. On vision, uh, both for individuals and for uh, the couple. And you know, that's a, a very important piece. We know that couples have basically been in recovery for a year. The addict is sober. They've been riding the roller coaster of their emotions up and down. And finally, when they get to the one-year anniversary of uh, their recovery, then they become much more able as companions to look at what their vision in a variety of categories are as a couple. So we're obviously overjoyed when, you know, we get to that place with a lot of our couples. Well, To add to the challenge, when you say that it's challenging to have a healing journey uh, in this area, Mm -hmm. you're not only talking about your personal healing journey, but that of your spouse. So it's kind of a two-for-one package, and that really complicates matters, you know? Well, it does, and it doesn't. It's just a matter of kind of uh, slowing down sometimes, taking time to do the individual work. I mean, two people who haven't really worked well on their individual issues also have some level of intimacy impairment, and it makes it very difficult for them to have safe conversations right. with each other. Right. By the way, that's another chapter, I think, in the Couples Toolkit, you know, how to have safe conversations. So one of our teachings here that uh, we've mentioned before is that couples counseling can really only proceed if the two individuals are working very hard on themselves. Any and all dic- addictions are... Uh, as we sometimes say, in remission, or there is sobriety from any of those. And by that, I mean, you know, sex addiction for a lot of the addicts is not the only addiction that they have struggled with. And uh, so we need to make sure that the addict is on the right path and of purity and and, uh, sobriety from any other kind of unhealthy coping that he's doing. All right. So one of the first things we think about, I think, is trying to get a couple in uh, right away when the discovery has happened or the crash and burn, something has come out that has uh, revealed, uh, you know, some of the truth about the addict's behavior. Uh, and, the, and the reason we, we like doing that right away is because, you know, uh, Debbie and I feel that we can help that couple triage, you know, what are going to be the important next steps in both of their healing journeys. Then, of course, uh, as the two individuals are healing, we, we certainly like on a regular basis to add the third dimension, uh, and that is, you know, relational counseling. Uh, we've always compared this to a three-legged stool and the one leg being the addict's recovery, the other, another leg being the wife's recovery, and then the third leg being the couple's in recovery. 
Well, then, why don't you start us out then, as you have set the table here, uh, and, you know, what are the first uh, elements of this relational dimension? Well, in other words, when we first start working with couples, is that what you're saying? Right, yeah. right. I mean, it's just like uh, you're taking our listeners back to the very beginning here with the basics of sexual addiction. Let's take them back to the basics of this relational dimension. Well, I think there are two critical elements that need to happen uh, early on, for sure. And uh, the first one is that in the addict's journey of getting sober, uh, because of the uh, neurochemical detox necessary, uh, we're going to recommend that uh, the couple go through an abstinence contract. It doesn't have to be necessarily in the first week or two or a month or so, but eventually uh, the addict's brain needs to detox and not have you know, any kind of... Uh, orgasmic activity. And we believe in 1 Corinthians 7, 5 that if a couple is going to go through abstinence, uh, like Paul teaches, uh, they should do so by mutual consent so that they can devote themselves to prayer and fasting. Uh, so when we take sex out in some of the early days for a time, it's usually about 90. Some couples do shorter. Many couples do longer than that. We want them then to also contract with us uh, to put something in place that will be a matter of spiritually connecting. And when you say 90, you're talking about 90 days. 90 days, not 90 months, not 90 years. Although <laughs> we, we joke about the fact that in the early days... It some, feels like it's 90 years. Well, it may feel like it's 90 years. And some of the uh, the spouses uh, who have been you know, in a lot of pain, uh, they say it may be 90 years before I'm ever willing to have sex with you again. But nevertheless, you know, Debbie and I, uh, our role is to help them negotiate it help them to see it for a positive purpose, not just a reactive purpose, and uh, also to keep them accountable to uh, the spiritually connecting part of the abstinence contract. Well, I think that's a good point uh, right there for us to take our break as our listeners are just trying to wrap their minds around the concept of abstinence, uh, of abstinence like that. Maybe so. you are, Randy, but I'm I'm quite familiar with it. Well, yeah, well, I do. I'm I'm trying to re represent the every man that's out there in this deal, you uh, know. All right, all right. Yeah, right. So, uh, at any rate, you are listening to Dr. Mark Laser, and this is the Men of Valor program. I can see the tears filling your eyes, and I know where they're coming from. They're coming from a heart that's broken into by what you do. Do you struggle with the use of pornography? Faithful and True is a Christian-based counseling center specializing in the treatment of sexual addiction and compulsive behavior issues. Our well-trained staff has the highest levels of clinical expertise combined with personal experience to understand and effectively treat your sexual addiction. We have a proven track record for helping men who are seeking a transformation in their lives. Our Men of Valor three-day intensive workshops, led by Dr. Mark Laser and Dr. Greg Miller, are the most effective and affordable treatment program in the country. Our workshop alumni rate our workshops as life-changing. We also offer workshops for spouses and couples. If you're ready to make a change in your life and are seeking a treatment program provided by the top Christian experts in the sexual addiction field, visit us today at FaithfulAndTrue.com to learn more. That's FaithfulAndTrue.com. He's just getting started And I can see the fingerprints of God When I look at you I can see the fingerprints of God Time.
Time now for the Trigger of the Week. Trigger of the Week, uh, we were talking at lunch today, as we frequently do, and uh, you were the one that came up with this one, so I'm just going to let you tell our listeners what it is. Well, a great portion of the nation last night was watching the finale of this season of The Voice. They had four very talented individuals that were the finalists, and last night was the big two-hour finale. And what I was struck by was the provocative performance. Uh, they brought back CeeLo Green to, provo- to perform with Jesse Larson, who happens to be from our area, in the, from the Minneapolis area. Right. And they performed a song that was embellished by a troupe of scantily clad women. And uh, it wasn't just the costumes they were wearing. It wasn't just the music itself. But the choreography was blatantly sexual. Mm-hmm. And it just struck me in our field as I was watching this, and I just thought to myself, I can only imagine the number of men who were triggered by that performance. Right. And so, you know, kind of keeping an eye out for this type of uh, example of triggers, um, mm-hmm. I kind of marched into work today knowing that we were going to be doing the show this afternoon mm-hmm. and knowing that we had a very timely, relevant trigger to share. It's an interesting example because uh, I think it's an example of even when we are being uh, intentionally conscious about trying to watch a show that is, for the most part, safe. It's pretty family-oriented. The guy who actually won, I think one of the things that boosted him to the top was singing a great uh, Christian song. uh, And it was either the semifinals or the quarterfinals, Mm -hmm. a song called Take Me to the King. And he is a music pastor, and he really got into that. So, I mean, I watch it because I think there are a lot of Christians, you know, on the show and basically rather tasteful most of the time. And But I'll have to be honest, I, I don't really care for CeeLo Green and his style of music. It's not about him. It's about what I prefer. And so I fast-forwarded through that whole song. And so I didn't see it like you did, which was probably a good thing. But. Well, I ended up fast-forwarding it, too, not not to sound like I'm holier than thou or anything like that, but I, because of my schedule, had to record it. So I was watching after the show had already concluded. And as I watched it and it got into the performance, I was uh, I was put off by it right. uh, to the point that, you know, once I saw the chemistry between Jesse and CeeLo and kind of got a little bit of a kick out of there because it's it, they were like a, a salt and pepper version of each other mm-hmm. physically right. because they're both rather short and, and, and stocky and it was a, an interesting uh, visual there. But then when the dancing commenced and the uh, it, it really became very clear what they were trying to accomplish through the interpretive dancing going on by the women, I, d- I fast-forwarded to it because I wasn't, uh, it wasn't my thing. It wasn't anything that I was enjoying. Well, I think in terms of our listeners hearing about this as a trigger of the week, it does go to show you that I think part of a program could be to not necessarily watch anything that you haven't recorded yeah turning away from it yeah so that you do have the capability of stopping it fast forwarding through it or whatever else it is that's kind of the beauty of dvrs DVRs, and and recording programs is you don't have to suffer through something that you don't want to to uh, watch or think about yeah that's right so if you don't have a dvr and something like that comes on turn your head or just get up and go get a snack yeah yeah, it's a great time for a bathroom break yeah exactly so let's take our listeners back to today's show in which you're explaining to us about the relational dimension of the model for sexual wholeness 
We talked about the abstinence contract before the break, and I also said there was uh, two major tools that we try to get the couples to uh, work on uh, in the early two or three months of their recovery journey. And the second one is what we call full disclosure. And we've talked about this on the show before, but it's obviously part of this basic teaching about essential elements now of sex addiction recovery, in this case, relationship recovery. And um, to understand the fact that we believe so strongly in full disclosure is because uh, uh, we know that the addicts have been profoundly lying for years and they have just not told the truth about all their stuff. We also know that sometimes the spouse only knows what she knows because she's discovered it or because uh, she's uh, run across it accidentally or she's asked lots of questions, which kind of leaves a spouse to wonder, you know, have I discovered everything? Have I asked the right questions? And uh, I've always believed, Debbie does too, of course, that it's, it's a really monumental thing for the addict to sit down and intentionally offer information without having to be asked about it. The old uh, direct from Perry Mason uh, telling the, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And then we also, and this is somewhat controversial, but we, not to us, I mean, we firmly believe in the fact that the addict needs to tell everything about his sexual history from birth to the present. I was just working with a guy in his disclosure statement yesterday, and there was some stuff in it that in his early years, like uh, 0 to 5 and 5 to 10, that really go a long way to explain why he got into trouble with pornography and masturbation later on in his life. So then he also, you know, went on to detail some of his sexual experiences in both uh, middle school and high school, and then later college before he met his wife. Some people think, you know, we disclose information about our stuff after we get married. But if this guy weren't willing to talk about the earlier stuff, you know, how would his wife know that this has, in fact, been a progression, that there are reasons for it? And that I think one of the other benefits of that is that if a spouse is tempted to take on this stuff because... uh, the marriage wasn't what it was supposed to be, or she doesn't look like she's supposed to, or whatever. You know, getting the full history from birth to the present uh, is usually enough for the average wife to dispel the notion that this addiction started, you know, at the marriage. No, it's it it always starts much earlier than that. So those two tools are very powerful, I think, in the early months. There are times when the couple is, you know, arguing a lot, getting stuck in things, and uh, we do need to think about a third tool, which is the possibility of a separation of some sort. Now, it doesn't need to be an out-of-house separation. In fact, you know, that that does happen around here, but we prefer, particularly where kids are involved, that it's an in-house separation. And basically what we mean is that they don't sleep in the same room and uh, for a a short period of time, they agree not to talk about any of the emotional subjects that tend to get them into uh, lots of stuckness. And uh, we have other things that we negotiate in terms of childcare and other kinds of things, but we believe that there are those couples for whom uh, their their ability to look at themselves is going to demand not having the pressure of needing to relate to their spouse, you know, for a certain period of time. So we see it as a tool for both individuals to grow. And then, of course, uh, we bring them back together gradually, uh, hopefully now in a much healthier way. Uh, So those are three things we think about in terms of the couple's uh, toolkit. The fourth thing we're going to be working with all of our couples with is how to have a safe conversation. And that is largely based on our teaching uh, about the iceberg model, which again, we've talked about on this show. But uh, it's all represented and talked about and taught in our book, The Seven Desires. But it's a way of uh, helping couples get to the deeper root issues of 
their core beliefs about things, their needs and expectations, uh, the seven desires that they carry into the relationship and, and all of that. The whole time we're practicing that model with them, we're trying to uh, help them understand what is true. And so oftentimes uh, we react to somebody else's behavior. We make a story in our head about what it means. And uh, we may or may not be right about what it means. That's what we call perceptions or core beliefs or sometimes the story in your head. So that's going to be one of the really important things that we're working on couples with, along with, you know, teaching them some of the basics of how to have uh, safe conversations. One of those basics is, for example, that we think all couples need to have the ability, if they get into uh, one of these stuck arguments, to be able to take a time out and uh, go off and journal, pray, call a friend, call a member of their support group before they try to come back and, and have a conversation because when they journal, walk around, pray, talk to uh, an accountability partner, those people may be able to remind them of what is true. And conversations always go better uh, when we start with what is true. So that is, you know, another one of the tools that we're using with a lot of our couples, uh, actually, you know, most of them. And uh, one of the last things when we get them stabilized with all of this ability to have safe conversations, the addict is sober, then we also uh, really want to start working with them on creating a couple's vision for their life together as a couple. And, uh, our couple's uh, vision has about 14 categories to it, I think. If I'm not mistaken, you can help me. That I know that's part of the couple's toolkit, but I think we also have uh, the vision diagram in our on our website. Is that true? I would have to check, but I believe so. It's under resources. Right. We uh, we did that one time. I don't know when we reformatted the new uh, website. Uh, we did remove a couple of things that we had on there. I would have to double check. Yeah. Well. Anyway, that's uh, that's one of our tools that we use. Generally, we think that the average couple, if they're in our groups, if they're in individual counseling, they can get away with seeing us maybe twice a month in the early months. Uh, then later, we like to extend it to once a month until uh, they get to a point where they're ready to, as we say, take their show on the road. And uh, they're healthy enough to uh, have safe conversations. And uh, uh, they're having healthy sexuality, healthy spiritual connection, healthy emotional connection. And I guess you all you always ask me how I'd like to conclude the show. Are we near that time? We are near that time. You've you you've developed a fine sense of timing on this. Well, it's like my timing for the for the sixty minute hour in counseling. But I just uh, kind of want to conclude by saying that uh, I think in the early days of couples recovery, uh, there's a lot of temptation to look at the possibility of divorce. There's a lot of pain that uh, both the husband and wife have experienced, and uh, if they're willing to face into all of that pain and get the help that they need, we believe, and we've seen it happen hundreds and thousands of times, that couples wind up having a much deeper relationship than they ever thought uh, possible. Well, you and Debbie have been shining examples of how a couple uh, in working this program and uh, working on their healing journey can not only survive, but can thrive. Can thrive. You have been listening to Dr. Mark Laser. I'm Randy Everett, your co-host, and uh, we thank you for joining us again this week. We hope that you're enjoying this series that we're bringing to you on the basics of sex addiction and sex addiction recovery. And we hope that this coming week is going to be a week for you that's filled with many blessings and with great vision. 
You've been listening to the Men of Valor program with Dr. Mark Laser. For information about this program or to learn more about Faithful and True, visit us at faithfulandtrue.com. That's faithfulandtrue.com. 